Hey, my wonderful friends in Africa, South Africa. I uh, just uh, am missing you a lot. I'm supposed to be with you right now, but in, unfortunately, with circumstances, I'm just not allowed to travel right now. I'm not allowed to come to your country, which is mind-blowing for me that you're forbidding us Americans to come. But uh, these are the times right now. Uh, but some have asked, some of the life team, in just meeting with them regularly on Zoom once a week, I've asked if there's any way I could just share something. Having the fact that I'm not able to be there, was planning to be there. Is there anything I could just share, uh, just with the pastors? And so I'm I'm going to take that opportunity, and uh, just share with you some things that I believe God's just been stirring in my heart. They're not necessarily new. I think they are for the season right now. Something God really began to speak to me over these last few weeks, and uh, I'm hoping you'll just hear them and heed to them, not agree with them, but actually go and. Make sure we're doing these things and making sure what I'm saying is in the Bible. I recognize these are incredibly interesting moments and times and seasons that we're living in. Um, I know there's a lot of guys talking about we've never been this way before, which I love. A lot of guys preaching out of Joshua, and I enjoy that too. Uh, many quote in the Joshua 3, crossing the Jordan, never been this way before. And that's a great text. But can I just say the difference between what they were walking through and what we're walking through is actually we know what God's called us to. Can I suggest we know where we're going? We, we might have never been this way before, but we know what we've been called to. And in our never been this way before, we can't just throw our hands in the air and just say, I don't know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do. What, we, what might be adjusting and is changing is the ways, not the, the what, not the what we've been called to, but the how to. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think a lot of it, we're getting stronger in other areas where the church has been weak. I think even for us as a team, we're looking at how we can be far more effective even in communicating just in these moments, not to replace what we've been doing, but where we can be more proactive and obviously see the church as more strengthened and encouraged. And so just to say to you, don't lose your way in this. Stick to the plans of God. Don't, I mean, it's difficult. I'm sure some of the guys, we're all walking through stuff together. You guys in Africa, Zimbabwe and that, I can't imagine. I'm supposed to be with you too. And the guys in Namibia and Africa and also South Africa. So again, just to throw it all out and say, hey, stick to God's plan. Don't doubt your call. Don't doubt what he's called you to. Don't question who you are and the mandate. Maybe question some of the ways. That's not a bad thing. There's lessons in the season for us. And, and I'm convinced we will come out of this. Maybe not exactly how we were doing things before, but we will be coming out of this in some way. or And in it, we should come out of it way stronger because we've exercised and, and, and focused on, on perhaps things we haven't ever focused on or needed to. Now we can. And so I hope that helps you uh, just to stay true to the call. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I know that's like a cliche, but it's not. That's what we've got to do is keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. He is our inheritance. He is our motivation. He is our message. He's the reason everything exists. When your eyes are on Him and His kingdom, the King and the kingdom, keep focus on those things. I can, can I suggest even in our preaching in the season, this coronavirus is real. There are ramifications. People are dying. Uh, people are losing their way. People's jobs have been lost. I get it here in this country too. In America, we've been in shutdown for weeks and looks like more weeks to come. Um, and so there are realities around this. I get that. But if we preach coronavirus and make the coronavirus the focus, we're losing our way. We've got to preach vision. We've got to keep on preaching the mandate God's given us even in coronavirus and through it. And so I hope you're doing that. And just I've watched. I'm trying to see what guys are preaching all around. And, and while there has been a season, okay, we're in this. 
And a lot of guys are talking about fear and that I think that's good. But let's move back to the king and the kingdom, the focus of the mandate, our mission, what God's put us here on. I hope that makes sense. It's not insensitive. We are visionaries. We cultivate, envision people. Where there is no vision, Proverbs 29 says that the people perish. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. And so let's keep on preaching the vision God's called us to. Let's keep on the mandate. Let's find fresh strategies and fresh ways. And uh, trust I, I get to you sometime soon. Long to be with you guys. I'm not Paul, I know that, but I was reading through Book of Romans and Paul says, I long to be with you so I can impart to you something that will make you strong. And, and while I think there's something of that that's always needed, this can't replace that. But I love what he goes on and says, even more importantly, that we can be mutually encouraged. And I'm longing, longing to come back to you guys. Hopefully September or October will happen for the Global Equipment. We, we're watching the space. We're hoping for it. We're planning for it. But we're obviously under restrictions and we've got to just see how it works. And we'll have to make some decisions in the next few weeks on what we're going to do. But at this stage, it is on. But even if it's not on, and we have to adjust it and put it out for 12 months or whatever it be, I still hope to get to you guys in October regardless. So hopefully we'll see then. all depends on this, what we're allowed to do. And that's out of our hands. But, but in all of this, can I say to you, that I, I started this year uh, hearing God. I really heard God. And I had no idea. Forgive me. I know I'm supposed to be a prophetic. I'm not a prophet, but prophetic. I didn't have an idea of this coronavirus and what it would do. And I think anyone who claims they did, well, that's great. Why didn't they tell us? But anyway, uh, what I do want to say is that God really spoke about this is a season, not a year, a season of release. And I still believe that wholeheartedly, even now when I've looked at some of the things I've, uh, God put on my heart for us to be praying for and put lists out there. And I, I hope you've got those lists. And while we pray for you as local churches and pastors, we really do, friends. We've been interceding for you over the, the weeks at late at night, early in the morning, Nicole and I have been praying. The team's been praying. We are praying uh, a lot for you in this season. We trust you praying for us as a team. And that's what I really felt God challenged me is that we don't pray enough for the team. We pray all for the churches, but the churches need to be praying for this team because we're connected in partnership. And I gave this whole list. If you haven't got it, get a hold of us. But it is out there. It's on YouTube. It's all there. Please be praying through those things. But I really felt God give me some of these things to be praying for. And now looking in it, I say, okay, it makes a little more sense. But in saying that, this is still a season of release. So please believe that, trust that, uh, don't lose your way in this. But um, I guess the questions I want to ask you and me in this time, because in a lockdown, in, in a season where a lot of what we're doing is kind of being challenged or being stopped for a seat, it's a good time to ask some questions. It's a, it's a good time not to question our call. Please don't do that. You are called of God. This isn't time to question your calling, your faith, your understanding. None of those things are in question. But perhaps it's a good time to just assess the stuff we've given ourselves to. When we come out of this into whatever that looks like into the future, let's not just go back to what was. This is a good time to say, let, if there's some adjustments to be made, why not now? And I'm talking to pastors, elders now, and saying we've got to adjust these things in our lives and in our churches um, and that's part of this good season that we're in. So it's a good time to take stock. It's a good time to ask some questions. And the question I want to ask you and I is this. What will remain? What remains? Let's say, and I don't believe this will happen, but let's say we're never allowed to meet again. What will remain of your church right now? What if we were never to open the doors of our buildings again? What is going to remain? What will be left behind? What is the remain? What remains in what we've done? And, and I think it's a good question because... 
whatever our answer is will determine what we've been given our time to. But now we can say, hey, why don't we look at what is important, what matters most. So when we get back to, to some normality again, that we can pursue these things, the right things, because I believe God's given us opportunity now to adjust some of the things. And, and it's not an exhaustive, I hope it's not an exhausting list, but it's certainly not an exhaustive list. But I, I want to look at some text, one text in particular is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to spend some time thinking about what will matter most at the end of our lives. What will matter, what will remain in our churches long after we're gone? What will remain? How do we measure our ministries? And, and Paul writes some things to Timothy that I think are incredibly important right now. And I want to read 26 verses. I could just tell you to go read them, but I want to teach you. I want, I want to be like I'm in your midst, like I'm standing there talking to you, rather than this is what this is about. And you can take some time to go through this I'm asking you to do that, but I want to read these texts uh, because I think there are things in there that we can see. And I want to highlight four. And there's a whole lot more I know and other of you, I'm sure, have got other revelation around this. But I felt God highlight four things for me, for us, as I was asked to share on this from this, this text in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And all four are needed. It's almost like a chair that if you have one or two of these, the chair is going to fall. But if we have all four of these, uh, and we're contending for them and we, we, we're focused on these and asking these questions and making sure this is what remains. And I think we've got some real opportunity to have a ministry in the kingdom that it will last. And what we leave for the next generation and the people, uh, I think, will be strategic from what we see from Scripture. So let's read together Second Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 1. Paul writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. You know, just to say this, to be, to be fruitful for Christ, you must entrust truth to fat men. I heard someone say that once. And people say, well, what do you mean fat? Well, faithful, available, and teachable. I think that is reliable people. Faithful people, available, and teachable. So we need to entrust the things God's called us to with people who are faithful in it, available to receive it, and who are teachable. And that's something of what Paul's saying. So invest in people, get behind people, give your life to people, train and equip people is what he's saying here. And I love how he says, you've seen me say these things publicly and privately. I've lived this out. I haven't just taught it. But there's some truth for us in that. Then we go in verse 3. He says, endure hardship with us. Not you do it. We do it together like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So many truths just popping out. I want to share, but I'm not going to. But go get this into us again and, and understand enduring like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We're not just followers of Christ. We're soldiers. We're not just leaders and shepherds. We're, we're soldiers. And I think this is important because we're in a battle and we're reminded of that, that we need to make sure we are following Christ the way He tended us. Verse 4, he says, No one... Serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Wow. <laughs> Leaders, pastors. Wow. He wants to please his commanding officer. Verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does, so not, does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive it and the share of the crops. Verse 7. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. And I, I want to say, let's reflect on this and let God give us insight for our own ministries, our own lives, so we understand what will remain in what we're doing. In verse 8, 
Remember Jesus Christ. I love how he brings us back to this revelation. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not changed. That's so good for us to hear. God's word is not chained. Even in this lockdown, God's word is not chained, cannot be stopped. Verse 10, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, with, if we, endure we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And then there's the heading, a workman approved by God. Verse 14, keep reminding them of these things. Not a one-off, not a moment. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermeneus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord will turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. And some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So some incredible truths a whole lot in there. But I, as I said earlier, I, I want to just highlight four things. How will we measure our ministries? What will remain? Well, here are four truths I want to highlight from what Paul says. And they, they like a chair, as I said. If you have one or two of these, you're not going to be successful. All four are, I think, absolutely vital. And as I said, there's another, more to this, I'm sure. And you can see other things. But just from this text, I want to highlight a few things. All four are vital. If we only have four of these, if we have all of these four, I'm going to suggest that we have a ministry that matters and a ministry that will remain. So how will we measure our ministry? Number one, and this is no new to us, I'm sure, but number one is our revelation. Our revelation. And our revelation incorporates everything we are and everything we teach. 
A lot of people like to talk about what they're teaching and Paul obviously addresses the things that have been taught and to correctly handle the word of truth and doctrines and, and I want to say that's vital and strategic and that comes from our revelation, what we believe, what we're convinced of. We need conviction like never before. We need to be convinced of things rather than we've heard things and are passing them on. We need conviction which I believe is part of our revelation. So our revelation determines everything about who we are, friends, as well as our ministries and what will remain. And that's why it's so important that we have ongoing and unfolding revelation, not one-offs now and then. There's this ongoing, I think even in a lockdown at times, God's taken me back to some of this time where I can just get ongoing and unfolding revelation of certain things. So I'm more convinced than ever before. And we've got to understand that determines how we live, how we lead, what we emphasize and, and we better be careful, if I can say, don't get caught up in all these cun cunning and craftiness and, and schemes, uh, myths. Um, can I be bold enough to say there's a lot of storytelling in the church today? And can I suggest we're not storytellers. We're called to preach the word. I, I know someone who kind of challenged me on that. And Jesus was a storyteller. Jesus was the story. And he told stories about himself because he is the way, the truth and the life. And while we can use illustrations to emphasize the points we're making, let's not tell stories. Let's preach the word because it's the word of God that will remain. I, I really want to challenge you and I. We need public reading of scripture. We need, I took 20, how much time did I take to read 26 verses to us to prove the points the, the, the word of God is more important than the points or the stories that I have. And, and we, we are in danger of leaving behind a story not the word of God that remains. The Bible says that in Psalm 119, your word is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Meaning if it's settled in heaven, it's settled here on earth. God's watching over his words. Friends, I can quote all these scriptures, but I think at times we forget that or we know that here, but we are preaching stories or telling stories about ourselves or our good works. Or, And I want to just say, what's going to remain is not our stories. It's his story Preach from Scripture. And Paul often told Timothy, preach the word. Be in, ready in season now. So, so the point being is revelation doctrines that are biblical, that are in Scripture, that are not taken out of context to make points we're trying to make. Let's make sure we're preaching the word of God. Here, here's the thing about revelation, unfortunately. I, I think it's more than this, but I've got the simple understanding of revelation. You see, for revelation to become a reality in our lives or in our churches or for God's truth to become our truth, something has to change in us. I've often said that, be careful when you ask for revelation, because revelation in its simplicity is God's invitation for you and I to adjust our lives. And uh, that's true. For God's truth to be my truth, something in my life has to be adjusted. Not God's truth, my life. And so it's a dangerous thing because many of us don't want to change, or many of the churches we're involved in, or all the preaching and the teaching, People, here's the thing is because I believe revelation starts with in your head when your ears you hear God shows you or reveals something from scripture or whatever it be. But for that revelation to be adjusted to become my lifestyle, I've got to confront something in my life. And a lot of people don't want to confront. They just love to add to, keep adding to rather than confronting and adjusting for the revelation. So revelation, the next step in revelation, often if I can say with not too limited to this, but it helps us understand while well, everyone's got head knowledge but very few are living in this revelation first god speaks and says something the next step to revelation is confrontation adjustment something in my life is confronted to make god's truth my truth then there is transformation we begin to see the outworking of that revelation 
And then there's a manifestation of what God says. But the first step from revelation to to get to transformation is confrontation. And, and, and if we can all be honest here, many of us are hearing great truth. God's sharing great truth. But we're not willing to confront something. Maybe even our churches uh, that we share every week. But people don't listen because they know it. And so we're all floating and we're quoting scripture. And we're able to tell people all this stuff from knowledge, head knowledge, but not from revelation. Friends, that won't last. That will not remain. What remains is when we're confronting these truths and allowing this truth to become our truth, that we can see transformation and manifestation of what God said. And so it's not challenging our people right now. We're challenging you, me, leaders. Are we allowing God's truth to become our truth? Are we allowing revelation to break into our lives? Are we not just running around with head knowledge? Even our preaching and the stuff we share is not just stuff we've heard. It's stuff we're trying to contend for and earn, uh, live in ourselves so we can preach from a platform and a place of, of where there's true honor and integrity rather than just stuff we've heard. Good truth, I think, that's needed. I, I love in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 17, and if you go read it, let me just read a few verses from that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. This is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I keep asking. This is a constant prayer for you to have revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. And so we need this constant revelation of Christ. The revelation of who Christ is. It's personal, friends. And I hope we're contending for not what we call to alone, but more importantly, who Christ is, because that determines everything. Keep this unfolding and ongoing revelation of Jesus, what Paul prays. Then he goes on in verse 18 of first, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, the revelation, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called. What a time, what a season for the church to get revelation of Christ, for leaders to know the revelation of the hope, our calling that comes. Let our hearts be, be enlarged and let there be revelation in this time. Our revelation matters, the hope to which we've been called. This is going to remain when we're no longer here. If we lose that, we won't have hope. We're just restricting God and pragmatically approaching our future and hoping we're hitting the mark. But let this truth, this conviction catch us again. The hope to which we've been called. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So we need this revelation of calling and purpose. Grip and let it get our hearts. In verse 18 we see verse 19. Talking about revelation here. Paul says and his incomparably great power. Dunamis. For us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength. The kratos. He exerted energia. When he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above a rule, authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul's writing, he says, you need revelation of Christ, you need revelation of calling, we need revelation of confidence in his power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Friends, we've got to have that confidence, the dunamis power, the energia power, the kratos power, the iskis power. Paul's using Deep, strong truth to drive this point home of the revelation the church we need. And I hope we're trusting even a season like this and growing in that. And then verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, And God placed all things under his feet, pointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, and fills everything in every way. And so that speaks of a consistency. We can be consistent because we're seated where we are because of Christ where He's seated. We're not earning a position. We're not ministering for position. We get to sit with Him 
He's done it all. And that's easier to stay consistent in all seasons, all time. And can I also say it helps us be more compassionate to care for people, not to look down on people because we're not seated where we are because of anything we've done. We're seated where we are because of where Christ has placed us, put us. It's easier to lead God's people from that position. We can be far more effective. And I want to suggest we will, our ministries will remain if we are functioning in consistency and compassion rather than we are driven and trying to force things and make things happen. And so we minister for, not for our position, from our, but rather from our position. You know, A.W. Tozer says this, Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance to God's word. And so we, we've got to help people by getting our own revelation, but also helping them get their revelation. Not about what we think, our thoughts, our points, what we suggest, what God's word says. That's what will remain. Don't forget this. What we win people with is what we will win people to. So let's make sure it's the king and the kingdom. It's the revelation of Christ. It's the kingdom of God. It's not some good thoughts and concepts. It's this revelation of his word that he's watching over with. Now there's a whole lot more to be said, I know. But Paul addresses that. I want to say that to you and I. Our revelation is what we need to be building out for, uh, trusting God for. And the word of God is what will remain. Let's make sure the stuff we're involved in, the preaching we're preaching, the lives we're living, the messages, all that is based out of revelation. And we're contending for that again and again because that's what will last. Secondly, Paul's, I, I believe he highlights something here. Not just number one, one leg of the chair. Number two, second leg of this chair is our right living. Not just revelation but right living. Now this, this gets a bit personal and I want us to do that because many guys have said even this season now, God's wanting us to clean out our own houses, our households, as well as our local churches. It's a good time to take stock and get rid of and clean out. And I want to suggest even our own lives. What a time to sort stuff out, friends. I think a lot of us, if we're honest in ministry and leadership, we're so busy doing ministry and getting on with it that we're not taking stock or we're not dealing with our own lives. And we might tell others to do stuff, but we're not doing it ourselves. But I want to tell you, if we don't fix this right living, our lives, we have nothing that will remain, nothing that will be long term. And, and to be honest, we won't have effective ministries when we're gone, if we're not living right, sorting out. Now, I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about confessing and getting rid of the stuff that needs to be living our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but living right is an important thing. You know, we've often said that our ministry, my ministry follows my life. My, my life does not follow my ministry. So many of us focus so much on our ministries and hope our lives get there. Friends, we've got to focus on our lives and our ministries will follow that. They will last according to our lives. Um, yeah, I'm going to say charismata, all that slows into the Holy Spirit and the whole move of the Holy Spirit and that. Can I just say again from Scripture and even from 1 Corinthians and we're looking at those texts there that charismata without character is not the work of the Spirit of God. God works on both and on both with a major emphasis on character transformation. And so when there's God's doing stuff with the Holy Spirit in us and moving through us, we also need to be working on our character. The Holy Spirit helps us not just in power and in signs and wonders and in the move of the Spirit. We need that. And I want to tell you that's amazing, but it's not at the expense of our character. We also need to be working. The Holy Spirit helps us. He, he's holy. And he wants us to be holy. He helps us overcome and deal with sin and deal with stuff in our own lives. We're good at telling others as pastors and leaders what they should do and how to handle sin. But we, what about us? My question for you and I is that are we making sure we're living right even in a season like this because it's going to be what remains? I think 
that there's way too much focus on building our platform and building our influence in leadership and it's at the expense of building our character. So I want to highlight character and say, this is what it means. So all of us are vulnerable to this, friends. All of us, including me, are vulnerable. We've seen people fall out, not point fingers. We've seen it. And it's nothing left of what they've been involved in. Let's, let's make sure we're living right. So I have some more questions that I have been asking. And let me ask you in light of this thing on right living. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? In Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no vision, people perish. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Some of the biggest threats to us who are visionaries is reality. And so we begin to live in the reality rather than be led by vision and inspired by things. But we've got to live in the real, but we've also got to be entrusting God, trusting God for the ideal. You know, without vision, we begin to compromise. And that's what Proverbs 29, 18 says. We begin to compromise. When we lose vision... We begin to become comfortable. We just settle for what we're involved in right now. When we be, have no vision, the downside is we lose our conviction. Friends, when we lose our conviction, we're no longer living right lives. We no longer care. It doesn't matter that much anymore. That's a dangerous place to be for us now and long term for our futures if we have lost conviction. Now should be the time where we get more conviction and convinced more and more. Not by holding on, but by the Holy Spirit showing us and empowering us. And even as I spoke of earlier about revelation. But when you lose vision, you have no conviction. Then you become consumed with the wrong things. You become complacent. And let's be honest, it could be a season that many become complacent because we're stuck at home. But let's not be there. Let's build so that things will remain when we come out of this. But also the downside of no vision is ultimately, I believe, that our character gets corrupted. It actually ends up in corrupting our character when we've lost vision. And I've seen that, I'm sure you have, in leadership, in pastors and leaders who've done, lived on the cutting edge of what God's called. And they've lost vision, they become dissatisfied. And eventually their, char their character, honestly, I've seen it, become just totally corrupted and are no longer in ministry, no longer even walking with God. I don't point fingers, I say, right living, we've got to work on it. So the question is, where are you? Where am I looking? Secondly, where are you living? My dad always used to say it to me, wherever you look is where you live. And so that's why where we look is important in how we're living. But where are you living? Uh, some questions that I have been asking. Part of this thing is, do I, do you live a life worthy of imitating? In other words, not do I preach a message, not do I carry a responsibility. The life I'm living, without being arrogant, is it? Can we with conviction, with right living, say, imitate my life follow me as i follow christ you see our ministry follows our lives as i said earlier and therefore i think there are three faces of our lives in leadership and in ministry the one is our public world and we play to that too much where everyone sees it and the social media and we always want and guys that's a real thing and even now we're using that more but be careful that's not really who we are that's that's one aspect of our public ministry where we put it out there and we want the best of who we are to be out there and the best way we do stuff at but can i suggest that's not who we are that's our public world where everyone sees then there's another world that we all are part of in our own lives and that's our personal world and that's a little more close to home but that's where those who are close to us see if you're married, what your spouse sees. If you have family, what your family, your children see. Those are your close friends or those people you're connected with. They see that world, that part of you, and that's important. But then there's another part that I think most overlook, and it's the most important. It's our private world. So there's this 
public world that we all play to. There's a personal world. There are some available and we're accountable to. But then there's our private world. And can I say that's just my world and God, me and God together. No one else knows or sees it. And, and only God sees that. That's where we have to be a people of integrity. That, and can I suggest that's what matters most to God. We play that public one and think that matters most. But we should be giving more time to our private world, friends. Uh, because no one sees it, but that's what will remain, that's what matters, and that's what we should give our attention to. Uh, let me ask this question, and I, I think it's a good, valid question. Is there anything in your or my world, private world, that if it was to become public, it would disqualify me from the ministry God's given? And that's a good question to ask, not to live in fear, but to better get it sorted out, friends, because right living is so needed. It's one of the, the legs that's going to hold this chair and it will remain. So it's not going to go away if we don't deal with it. We can't just pray it away. We need to deal with stuff. We need to make sure that even in a season like this, that there's right living. So let me ask again, is there anything in my world or your world privately that no one knows, just me and God, that's happening that, that needs to be dealt with? If it becomes public, then we should no longer be in ministry. Then we should do it privately, deal with it now and get it sorted out. And what a time to do that. I, I want to suggest in our private lives, in, in right living, it's not only sin, it's, it's we've got to keep all our tanks full. Uh, we burn out and what a time to fill our tanks, but keep them full, not just fill them up when you need them. Keep them full. What are the five tanks? Our relational tanks. And there's a whole lot around that, but make sure you're filling your relational tank. You're getting it full and you're filling it. Secondly, intellectual tanks. We all have them and we need to make sure some of us are filling our intellect with truth in it, but, but just make sure you're filling it and connecting with it. Physical. I know we're all down in lockdown and that, but find ways of being able to get fit and healthy and this is a good time to actually eat well and do right and come out of this, not just for Corona, but long term. So we can be more effective. This is private life. This is right living. Get fit and healthy. Not have to go to the gym and not become obsessed with your body, but make sure that we're being strong, fit and healthy so we can stay the course, friends, and, and live this mandate God has for us. So stay physically, fill up your tank physically and, and also spiritually. Make sure your tank's being filled spiritually. Um, statistics that I've read and they're freaky and scary. I don't like to read statistics, but some of the statistics for the U.S. as it were says that 21% of pastors spend less than 15 minutes a day in prayer and the average is 39 per minutes per day. Now, it's not about time. It's not about how long. It's about the involvement and the investment and realizing the need to, to go before God and get our spiritual wells full, friends, because we are always giving. And if you keep giving without getting, you're going to die, you're going to burn out, and you nothing will remain of it. So make sure we're filling. I know this is obvious. I know we counsel people this all the time. But I want to suggest in this time and season, God's saying this to us. What are you doing with your spiritual life? Are you filling your wells? And even when we come out of this, keep filling them. Not now they're full. Keep filling them. And also our emotional uh, tanks. And again, some of us feel like we're not emotional. We all are. We all carry stuff. And ministry, it's, it's, it's reality. We carry. We don't even realize what we carry. The pain uh, of others. The joy of what others. We carry it, friends. If we, we, we just got, even as men, people are as ladies, men too. We all need to make sure we are taking care of our emotional tank and filling it. You know, one out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor in the United States. So that means 90% of every person who starts in ministry will actually retire as a pastor. That's tragic. One in 10. How does that even work? I don't know. But this is because we're not filling our tanks 
And let's not become a statistic. And this is a good season to say what will remain. Uh, our, our, our right living. Um, and then the question in this is, so where are you looking? Where are you living? Where are you leading? And uh, it's part of our lives because our lives, our ministry follows our lives. Our leadership follows our lives. So just on this, just to be reminded that leadership in God's kingdom is influence. It's not control. It's not it's not who you're controlling, it's who you're influencing. That's why right living is so important. That we're influencing people by our leadership position given by God. Let's make sure our lives are influencing them in the right way. A good leader, I believe, knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. Doesn't just know where we're going and tell people how to do it. Doesn't just show, but actually goes the way. Example to others. Let's show, know, and go the way. That's the greatest what will remain, is living this out. Paul was able to say to Timothy, you know how I've lived amongst you. You know how the things I've said I've lived out. That's what we're talking about. Knowing, showing, and going. Let's lead the way, because that is part of right living, I believe. Can I say also that we lead in team? We've got to be building team. This is part of right living, is building right. We're not about ourselves. Can I, if you are doing it alone, if you're leading alone, you're a loner. You're not a leader. And we need to get back to leading together because it is God's way. And we can break the major, you know, the sin in leadership, the, 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 the things that he, Paul talks about, these youthful, flee youthful lusts. So it's not for the youth. It's the things that attract us. And I think that even in the church today and in ministry, and I think you can break, I heard someone say this, you can break the sins up into four areas. And I want to just give them to us. This is important. I know it's an awkward subject, but it's strategic, guys. We're talking about remaining, having that, that, that um, leg in place on the chair. And so here's what I want to say. We can break the major four categories of sins that tempt us in ministry. Four categories. Number one, power. The sin of power. And if we crave power, we'll crave position of power. And that's a dangerous place to be. Another sin is the approval of people. Approval. If we crave approval, we'll take criticism really badly and be derailed out of it. But we'll also be proud and envious and we'll live for the recognition of others. I, I, I want to say this. If we're not seeking the glory of God in ministry, then we're depending on the affirmation of men in ministry. And that, my friends, is disaster and will never last and nothing will remain because people are fickle. It's not the praise of man. It's the glory of God that should motivate us. So if we are looking for approval, it's a sin that will derail us. And we must look to the approval of who God is and what he's called us to do. Another sin is comfort, sin of comfort. It's the God of our age. It's the God of the church even today. And maybe it's the, become the God in leadership is comfort. And I want to say if we crave comfort, we'll feel like ministry is a burden. We're carrying too much responsibility. But we'll complain about people and people will tire us out. Don't crave comfort. Crave conviction of what God's called us to. And the fourth category is security. If we crave security, we'll be overbearing. We'll be inflexible, impatient, irresponsible, and we hide our weaknesses. We can't crave security in what we do. Our security is in who God's called us to. Don't let that sin unravel you. Don't let that, that weakness, which we all have in leadership, derail you. Because what we're building will not remain if you derail brother. Here's the bottom line. We need to know where we're vulnerable, all of us. And we need to know our weak spots. We need to run away from those weak spots because they will kill us and our leadership if we don't. So another question, a lot I know. How do you deal with issues of sin in your life? Do you deal with a symptom? 
Do you deal with the problem or do you deal with the root? We've got to not just symptom sort it out. We don't just do the problem. We need to get to the root and we need to deal with it. Get to that level. How do you handle temptation? Temptation is not a sin. I know you know that. Jesus was tempted in all things, but he was sinless. So we often be told if you're tempted, you've sinned. No, no. It's what we do with temptation. How we handle temptation. And I ask you, how do you do that? You see, we've got to deal with temptation, I believe, immediately. These are little things that creep in and adjust and walk us away from right living. That's why we're highlighting it again, friends. Led by the Spirit, conviction from the Father. Um, but we need to deal with temptation immediately. We need to nip it in the bud. Don't underestimate the power of temptation. We have a tendency, I think, to get as close as we can to sin. And then we, before we can get away from it at the last minute, that's what we think. But the longer we wait, the harder it gets. And so instead of acting decisively, we flirt. We see how far we can get without getting into trouble. And the moment we do that, I think we've given the devil a foothold. Again, not to live in fear, but to be aware. Deal with, um, um, with temptation immediately. Deal with it ruthlessly. Not just do away with it. Get dealt with ruthlessly. If you know what something will, if you know that something will be a situation that will tempt you, stay away from that situation. You know, somebody said, he would not fall down, should not walk in slippery places. If you don't want to fall, don't go to slippery places. Somebody said, strength is not merely in the ability to resist temptation. True strength lies in refusing to go there where you know you'll be tempted. So just let's be ruthless in about it. Let's, let's not flirt with sin. Let's get dealt with. We know what's sin all along. Just deal with it ruthlessly. Deal with it realistically. Recognize it for what it is. What's behind this temptation? Deal with it decisively. Just deal with it, friends. Please, I'm asking you for the sake of what God's called you to, us to, and our future. What will remain? Deal with it radically. All right, so it's a long point, and there's many other truths around that. But number one, our first leg is revelation. Second one is right living, and Paul addresses that a lot. Thirdly is our relationships, and uh, I want to be careful saying this because we can't perfect all our relationships, and not all our relationships are up to us, but what will remain is not just good truth, good theology, good doctrine, it's the relationships. We are relational people. Jesus came to restore right relationship back to the Father. That's why He came. Everything we do is relational, and, and I think what will remain is our relationships, how we've built, how we've gone about this. And I want to be quite practical and, and take us to some obvious texts again. But I feel like it's so needed for right now for who we are and what we've been called to do. So how do we handle our relationships? What will remain is our relationships. Obviously our relationship with God, and I'm not going to share any of them. I'm just going to give you the highlights and you hopefully are working on these. Our relationship with God, most important relationship. Our relationship with our spouses, friends. Our marriages matter to God and to us. And we've got to be working on that and, and making sure, not leaving it to God. We've got to be taking care of our bride and not too busy with His bride. Make sure we're working on our, our marriages, our families. Let's work. What a time, what a season now, even to invest in our, if our families and our children, if they are around. No matter their age, love them, cherish them, encourage them, build them up and strengthen them and build your relationship with family. I want to suggest, I know this is harsh and who do I think I am, but if you've got broken relationship with families, I challenge you in this time to pick up the phone and reach out. And I believe that there are many restoration um, parents or mothers or brothers or sisters or cousins that relationships are, will be restored in the season if we just 
do the right thing and reach out even if they've done you wrong. I believe people are ready and willing and what a time just to reach out. Don't get busy with that, but it's a moment to take the advantage and, and let's reach out to those people. So with other family men, with other leaders, bam, friends, we need to be united around what God's called us to. We need, we need to reach out and befriend and put issues aside with other leaders even with people in our church. This whole thing of covenantal relationship is so needed to understand right relationship. Covenantal relationship. My dad used to preach on this all the time. And it's so needed even now in this season of, of relationship, our relationship. Covenantal relationship are not what's in it for me. It's what's in it so I can bring together for the kingdom to get the job done of what he's called us to. And so he used to talk about we need to be committed to each other committed are you still committed to each other committed to one another not are they committed to us are we still committed to them are we still submitted mutual submission not i'm above you and you below submission is so strategic for covenantal right living uh, right relationships as uh, serving not what can i get from this how can i bring what can i bring imagine two relationships one person bringing what can i bring how do i serve another one how do i serve can you imagine the strength of that covenant when we live in that place and so i just ask you not what are you in it what are you getting out of it what are you bringing are we still committed to serving others not being served as leaders but serving others but i want to highlight this thing of also preserving uh, committed submitted serving and preserving and i want to just chat around the matthew 18 text for a moment and actually just look at it because because in our ranks and i know everybody quotes matthew 18 i want to be straight i don't see too many people actually doing what Matthew 18 says. We quote it, we say handle it like that, but we don't actually go about it. And that's why I think there's so many broken relationships. And, and I'm not looking to bring restoration to everyone. There are people who've broken away from me and want nothing to do with me. To be honest, there's not a lot I can do about that. But there are others that we can work through some stuff together. And I just think we've got to get better at this, coming out of this, because our relationships do matter, friends. God does care about these things. And Jesus gave us an incredible how to handle conflict and sin when it comes to people being um, irritated or, or hurt by others. And so let's just say this. Conflict does happen. It's going to happen. That's, that's not, the Bible doesn't say conflict doesn't exist. So when people think it's, when it happens, it's the end. No, no. It's part of every person living together. It's part of gifts being together. It's part of personalities being together. It's part of everybody in our local church who doesn't fit God, making them fit. Conflict exists, and we're not exempt from it. So don't think that is right relationship. Conflict's there. The question is, how do we deal with it? How do we handle conflict? And I'm asking us as pastors to handle this first, leaders to do this right, and to teach this again and again. I'll, I want to record a whole thing on um, regulating right relationships, a whole teaching on this. But I want to highlight this for us. I really felt to do this, even for us as pastors. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us some instruction on how we can deal with conflict while walking in love. Let's read quickly. Matthew 18, verse 15. It's dealing with sin in the church. It says, If your brother or sister sins or sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 17 of Matthew 18. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, 
Truly, I tell you that if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, which is one of the most wrongly quoted verses. Matthew 18, verse 20. It says, For where two or three gather in my name, there, is, there I am with them. Most people use that as that two or three together people, God's in our midst. Great. That's not what it's saying. It's actually where there is restoration, where there is agreement. God is with people when they're in agreement. So we can still quote that with two or three are gathered, God is there. I'm okay with that. But the context of that verse is actually agreement. Meaning, if you're not in agreement, is God really there? Jesus was making the point. And I do think it's that big a deal. And we play this game and pretend nothing's wrong, but God doesn't play it. We've got to sort it out. We've got to fix it. So here's the point. This is interesting. That our connection with God affects and governs our relationship with each other. And... Here is an important point also. Our relationships with each other affect our relationship with God. So our relationship with God affects our relationships with each other. But also, is it done? How long is that? Uh, 50 minutes. Five zero? Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right, Chris, we didn't need to get there, bud. So if you can... I'll pick it up. So our relationship with God affects our relationships with others. And everyone agrees with that truth. But many forget the other side of this truth also is that our, our relationship with each other can affect our relationship with God. And that's why we cannot oversee. That's why we cannot just excuse and pretend there are no issues. We've got to actually deal with them. It's important for all of us. That we have a right relationship with each other. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, and go be reconciled to them. Then come and give your gift. Why? Because it affects our relationship with God when we're living in these other places of disconnect with others. It's so vital, friends. The difference, I believe, between spiritual and unspiritual community is not whether... Uh, conflicts exist, but rather in our attitude towards it and our approach to how we handle it. When conflict is seen as an opportunity to draw more fully on spiritual resources, I believe we have the makings of a spiritual community as a church and as a gathering as people. So let's ask these questions. How do we handle conflict? Because how we handle conflict actually determines the maturity level of us as leaders and as of the churches we're leading and the ministries we're involved in. That what will remain is how we handle, how we deal with conflict. Not if conflict exists, but how we handle it. The mature way is what we're aiming for. The truth of the matter is that relationships can actually be strengthened through conflict. Conflict can be a good thing as we share our ideas Think about what we believe and the way we do and present the case for our position. This can only be done if we handle uh, conflict correctly. So what makes or breaks relationships and what makes or breaks churches is what we choose to do in conflict. And that's what Jesus highlights here. We've got to learn how to walk in love while dealing with conflict. So I believe what Jesus shows us here, it involves three things. Number one, we must have the right attitude. This is vital. It's not getting justice. It's the attitude we to come with when we are addressing someone who we believe has hurt us or sinned against us. And it's amazing at the beginning of Matthew 18, uh, Jesus sets the stage for this teaching on resolving conflict 
by saying that we are to become like little children. Jesus says that we are to humble ourselves like little children, meaning we must approach our conflicts with humility. To be humble means to bring low. And that is what uh, that is the opposite of what we want to do many times in conflict. Can you imagine if we handled these things in a heart of, of humility, coming with humility rather than coming to blame or coming to prove I'm right and you're wrong? First, just the atmosphere of the way we go about it, the attitude will change everything. And I think we'll see a lot more things restored the way God intended them. Too many times we seek to seek to exalt ourselves in these times and to or to justify ourselves or to prove that we're right and they're wrong. If that is our approach in conflict, the conflict just grows and gets worse and is unresolvable. When we are dealing with conflict, Jesus says the goal is reconciliation. It's not justification. Think about that for a moment. We're there to reconcile, not to justify. Think that attitude. Come with that attitude. Friends, we'll see far more things restored. People God's called us to work with and walk with if we just get back to that attitude again. In other words, our hope is to mend our relationship and not to choose sides or declare a winner. If only one person wins, then everybody else loses. That's what happens when we come to these things. So we're going to ask the Lord to search our hearts, I think, before we ever deal with conflict. We must ask ourselves, am I walking in and motivated by love? Why am I bringing this? If not, get your heart right first and then deal with the problem at hand. But don't just go fly off the handle because you're offended. I think we must have the right attitude, the attitude of humility, the attitude of love. So Jesus addresses that. Secondly, he says we must have the right approach. So the right attitude matters, coming with the right heart. Secondly, the, the right approach. He gives us four very simple steps Jesus does here in Matthew 18 on how to handle conflict. A lot of times we make things so complicated, friends. But Jesus made it very simple. We should save ourselves much heartache and would show Jesus to the world much more effectively if we simply follow directions. The first step is to go to the individual. It's an individual thing, a private conversation. It starts with the right attitude and going to that person as an individual, a private conversation. This is where most often I think we miss the chance of reconciliation because we, we go to all these other steps before this step. But this is what Jesus tells us to do. Go to the person who sinned against you. And when someone comes to you with a problem about another person, here's what we should do if we want to be biblical. Make sure they've talked to that person first. How many of us do that in leadership? We don't. We just embrace what they say without actually asking them, have you even talked to a person before you talk to me? If, if not, don't let them gossip to you, friends. That's gossip. But encourage them to talk to the person. Start where Jesus said start. Jesus tells us to have a private conversation with that person that we need to have that conversation with. Can I just say also in this, just trying to be as practical as I can, and I hope it's not boring us. This is so, I believe, needed for where we're headed and how we deal with things in the church. How do we do this? Immediately. Don't put off the conflict. I think for weeks or months, because and trust and hope it goes away. Why? The offense tends to get blown out of proportion the longer we wait to address it. So deal with it immediately, as quick as possible, and you watch how quickly things get dealt with. Can I also say, it's not always practical, but try and meet face to face. Jesus says, go and show them their fault. Don't, don't just tell others. Try and, as best as you can, meet face to face. Go and show them. Anything less than face to face conversation, I believe, places a barrier between the people involved. 
then it's important to affirm. It's not to suck up friends or to make friends, but affirm the relationship. That, that's why we wanting to sort it out. If we can affirm that, it puts the guard down of us fighting. I'm actually here to affirm this relationship and I want to keep on seeing this thing work. Let the person know that you're seeking to resolve the conflict, not to assign blame, not putting them under pressure to come up with a reason. And let the person know up front how much they mean to you. It's good to do it like that. And I've done that. I've tried to do that as much as I can. And it's dis dissolved and defused situations. If we just listen to Jesus, He knows best. It's also important to make observation, not accusation. I think that is also key. Don't accuse rather than but rather bring an observation. Say, this happened, it perceived me. I felt this is what you were saying. Not you did this, you're a liar, or whatever else. This means addressing actions that occurred rather than pointing a finger or attacking their character. Don't come at the character of the person. Rather talk about the, uh, the action. And you know, most people, we keep saying, most people are offended because they judge us by our action rather than our intention. And so I think a lot can be sorted out if we just get back to not judging, just bringing an observation, not an accusation. Use I statements instead of you statements that helps i think with the humility and a reason to actually see things restored uh, it's rather say stuff like i feel that you did me wrong is better than you're a liar or you said this about me rather just bring it i rather than you i think it helps it diffuses it's an honorable way friends and we if, if we're not seeing justification we want to see reconciliation you don't care about anyone but yourself don't say those things rather i want to see this address address what you've seen and perceived and felt don't accuse and put someone in a defensive place take ownership of your feelings and when you have this conversation make sure you get the facts uh, so people can understand after you've made your observations can i just say allow people to respond so many offload and walk away allow them to respond there may be things that you've misunderstood which i think most happens or been unaware of and can i suggest nine out of ten times this is where the problem lies We've misunderstood or we've, we haven't had the whole truth. And when the other person is responding, keep your ears open and your mouth shut so you can hear and we can see this thing. Don't interrupt. Let them finish. Can I also say try to promote resolution. The point is not to fight or to win or to prove something wrong. The point is to restore trust and harmony. And so now most conflicts can be resolved in this stage if we, if we will have the courage and care enough about the person to take the first step. But what if the offender doesn't want to discuss it, doesn't want to make the relationship right, then we go to the next step. And that is where we include someone else, is what Jesus said. That's when we bring someone else. Take a witness. Now, can I also just say about this witness? These witnesses are there for the same reason. Reconciliation, not justification. They're there to, to help you in the first step to bring reconciliation. It's not to gang up on the person. It's, it's, it should involve others only when going alone didn't bring healing. It's not I go to them first. This other person should be someone who can help with emotions in check and help clarify the issue as we work together for reconciliation. So first, have a private conversation. Second, if someone take someone who might have resolve, help resolve the disagreement. If that doesn't bring resolution, then Jesus gives us the third step. And that's one of the most drastic steps involve or take it to the church notice that jesus does not specifically say make an announcement from the pulpit what he's saying is 
Uh, maybe in some extremes we might have to do that if it's something that is really bad and sinful and it's leadership or elders, then I think those times are necessary. But, but it's, there, there's no continual confirmed unconfessed and then I think we have to deal with some. But I believe the first step here is to gather the wise folks from the church and let them hear both sides. And again, try to help with reconciliation, not justification. Okay, so you've tried the individual private conversation. You've tried the including another person. You've tried to involve by the church, bringing people from the church. What if that still doesn't work? Well, then sadly, can I just say, we live in a world that's not perfect. And some conflicts are unresolved. They just can't be resolved. Then, and only then, do we apply the fourth step of what Jesus says. is Just realize we're incompatible and we need to break off that relationship. Even if you cannot reach agreement, even agree to disagree, then separation is called for. And Jesus said to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. That does not mean you treat them badly. How did Jesus feel about pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. In actual fact, he had some of them on his team. So he walked in love with them and hope of winning them over. If you have someone who refused to be reconciled to you, ask yourself these questions. Do I long to be reconciled still? It's a good question. Do I still act in love towards that person? And if so, then what are you doing? Are you doing? Then I believe you're doing your part. You can't force them to reconcile. But as long as you've got a heart to say, I long to, and I lo love them still, then I think you've done all you can. So please hear that. Don't go and make things happen. It's two-sided. You can only live in your side. I know there are people out there that have walked away from me personally. And I, honestly, I can do my best to try and reach out to them. But at the end of the day, it's got to be two-sided. I just got to know in my heart I've done all I can and I carry no grudge and no issue and I'm longing to be reconciled if they were willing and wanting to. It's now up to those people. So again, friends, conflicts will happen. We must learn how we can handle dealing with conflict while walking in love. And so the fourth thing, the third the result is the atmosphere. Now I just want to highlight. So number one, we need the right attitude. We know that Jesus spoke about the right approach and thirdly, the right atmosphere. See, when we deal with conflict appropriately, we'll see positive results in our lives and in our churches. We see agreement. That's where Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name in agreement, I'm with them. When we agree, there's this atmosphere change of the provision of God. God honors that. We see His presence with us when we're in agreement. That's the atmosphere that comes from handing this right. The presence of God backs it up. We've seen it over and over, and we want more of His presence and unity and then let's make sure we're handling these things right. I don't know. They say about Leonardo da Vinci, when he painted the Last Supper, he painted Judas's face as the face of someone with whom he was angry. But he found that he could not paint the face of Jesus until he changed the face of Judas. And I think there's something in that. We can't do the things of Jesus if we're holding grudges against someone else. Bitterness and resentment, we know, as Scripture shows us. I mean, 2 Samuel 6, 16-23, when the ark was being brought back to Jerusalem, a great proof again, text, where, where David was dancing with all his might and becoming undignified. And it says that Michal, his wife, despised him. She saw what he was doing and says she despised him in her heart. And it says that she was barren till the day she died. I think there is something that brings a curse if we carry... Just if we carry bitterness and resentment in our hearts, God can't give us fruit when we're living in that place. That's why we've got to make sure we're dealing with it. If we're not holding out on others, we're actually holding out on what God wants to do with us. Uh, one of the big texts, Mark chapter 6, where Jesus talked about a prophet without honor in his own home. And it says in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus 
went to his hometown and he was doing these things but it says that people took offense because they recognized him as the carpenter they couldn't and they took offense and it says that he could do very little uh, miracles in their region because of their lack of faith you see offense leads to lack of faith and lack of faith leads to unfruitfulness even jesus couldn't perform miracles because of their offense and so there are many other texts around that i'm just saying friends this is necessary this is what will remain we've got to fix these things we've got to sort them out we've got to handle them right biblically we're relational we build relational the gospel's relational the kingdom's relational ncmi is relational and we've got too many broken relationships we've got to fix them and do our part because it matters as much as your preaching and teaching that we get this thing right together so that relationship, relationships matter. Let's not have broken relationships all over the world and call ourselves followers of Jesus. Relationships matter. Work them out. That's the third um, leg on the stool, uh, on, on the chair. And the fourth one I want to highlight is our reproducing. Our reproducing. So number one is uh, our revelation. Number two is our right living. Number three is our relationships, what will remain. And number four, our reproducing, our multiplying. We know that these are realities, these are truths we're trying to live by as a team and certainly within our ranks. But I want to ask you seriously, how much of releasing and raising up are you doing? We've got to recognize, we've got to raise up and we've got to release. We've got to build with and build for the next generation, the now and the next generation. Raising up and releasing. I've been studying the life of Joshua, the leadership of Joshua. I've loved the truth that comes from these texts. And maybe by observation, Joshua was an incredible soldier. He was a fighter. He led his people to battle, to, through battle. It takes right through Joshua where he, was, he led well as a soldier. He was a great shepherd. He looked after his people really well. But one thing it seems that Joshua didn't really do well was he didn't have a succession plan in hand. What, what, what plan in mind? He kind of left it up to the Lord, which is great, sounds good, but the results were pretty negative because God wants people to make sure we all have succession plans. We're building for the next generation, and and one of the most down, uh, maybe the disappointing texts that I've read recently just is in the book of Judges. Let me just read it to you. Judges chapter 2 verse 6. It says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Awesome that he raised them, and they all went and took the inheritance. That's great. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done. In verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Verse 10, after that, the whole, after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. And then we read how they did whatever they see fit and then God had to intervene again and again. Here's the point. He led them well. He took them into their inheritance. He raised people around him. He had a great team around him. He did things. He did. He was strong. He was courageous. He gave people their inheritance. He gave. But it says even he had the conviction as for me and my house will serve the Lord. He had this great opportunity. But friends, somehow they all grew up. They all When they all died, the next generation grew up without being involved without understanding and again it's not an accusation it's an observation for us to say joshua the man of god who took people into their god-given inheritance didn't raise up successor why because maybe he had a heart to say god's got this 
but he wasn't intentional enough to actually raise people up and make sure and be an intentional. I think many of us trust and hope God's got it, but we're not being intentional. And there's a lesson for us. Be intentional about building with the next generation and the generations to come because that's what will remain when we're gone. These other things matter, but they've got to be implemented and put into people's lives of generations that are for us. And so I want to develop a whole preaching around this, but I want to give you the headlines as I land this and say, we've got to build up. We've got to build up. We've got to secondly, build deep, build down. We've got to build out. We've got to build forward. We've got to build for. We've got to build towards. We've got to build with the next generation. We're going to build up. We're going to build deep. Build down. Make sure that we're building strong foundations that's going to last, outlast us. We're going to build out. We're going to make sure we're upward and outward focused, not inward focused, outward focused. We're going to build forward, meaning we focus on what's to come, not what was, not even what is, but what's to come. That's what it means to build for another generation. It's build forward, uh, making decisions and implementing things today that they're going to have ramifications for for those people that are yet to come. We're going to build forward with them. We're going to help them understand why we do what we do and the decisions we're going to bring them into what we're doing so they understand because we're forward thinkers and we're putting things in place. We're going to build for him, but also for them. So we don't take in the spoils for ourselves, but we're building for the next generation, which means we put things in place that make no sense today, but one day they'll make sense. I, uh, there's many illustrations of that. The, the, the guys who built those cathedrals in the Middle Ages in, 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 in England. And uh, it says it took 70, 80 years to build. But they planted the trees in when they began to build the foundation. And when 80, 90 years later, when they were no longer there, there were trees that had kind of grown up, grown, and they were branches, and they could use those trees the, the, to, to build the, the uh, roof of those um, uh, of those. Uh, uh, what cathedrals and i just think what a picture these guys thought beyond we're just going to do our thing and then the next generation will do this they put in place 90 years before knowing they wouldn't be there but the roof's going to be needed when this thing's done and so we're going to sow now so they will reap and i i think that's something for us guys we're going to lead with that in mind the stuff we sow now is for them build for them build towards them and build with them don't build for them and then hand it to them get them involved let's bring them in and what we're doing let's make sure we build because that's what's going to remain their generation and the generations after them if jesus tarries and if they let it not be under our watch that we did what we did so well inheritance and all that but we forgot there's a generation coming after us let them know let them do greater exploits let them walk in greater things it's the god of generations not the god of weeks months and years but generations and we got to be that so let's be intentional not just have a heart for this and so in landing all of this i know i've taken long but i i'm doing a three-day national elders in one hour whatever it be but i hope you're hearing the heart of this let me land with saying these things we need all four of those there's more i know we need greater revelation <coughs> our revelation our uh, our um our revelation our rec uh, our right living, our relationships, and also our reproducing, multiplying, raising up and releasing. Those are going to be some of the things that matter most. That's what's got to remain. But in landing this, pastors, leaders, my friends, remember, we need to know where our effectiveness comes from. When, when we understand that we are effective because He called us to be, it's not in our own strength, it's not in our thing, I often think laying a hold of our call means owning 
our potential and our limitations. And while we're to work on our crafts, we need to trust God and understand that He created us and has given us the context in which we lead. So don't compare, don't compete, don't try to outdo. Just get a hold of this thing. Our effectiveness comes from God. If we focus on these things, God will give us the, the ability to be effective even in this time and this season. Another thing is be real. Let's not have unreal expectations. Let's expect God and expect more from God, but be real at every level with the people we are involved in. And let's live in reality. Be real. Otherwise, we're going to always be disappointed in people. Trust God, expect God, <clears throat> but be real uh, in this time and season. Another thing is one will never multiply. You can't multiply on your own. You've got to be involved with others. We need people representing and reproducing who we are if we're going to be building for what remains when we're no longer here. Again, friends, while there's some quick things that God is speeding up process, there's no overnight success. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 30, it still says, little by little, they took the land. Don't be frustrated and think others are doing it better. Just stick to God's plan. Little by little still matters. We will take the land, even if it's little by little. But there's no overnight success. And if there is, mostly often it's not God or God's not in it and it won't remain. <clears throat> Can I also say the call is higher than the fall. In other words, we have a high and holy calling. Don't give up. Don't ever let success get to your head or your failures get to your heart. Stick to the plan God has for us. Earn the right to speak into your lives. Don't just speak in because you're a leader. Earn the right to speak. Build bridges. Don't burn them. Another thing is be a connector, not a climber. Let's not climb some imaginary ladder. Let's connect people rather than climb on people's backs to get where we're called to go. Let's build relationships. Success is fleeting, but relationships are eternal. Invest below the waterline, as I said. Make sure we're right living. You know, the characteristics we possess that determine our success are those least visible to others, but are most important to God. And so let's invest in our below the water level where no one can see. Let's try to feel things and not just fix them. Don't be so good at fixing things. You've lost your heart for people. We've got to feel in order to fix. I've often said, if you're not close enough to get hurt, you're really not close enough to make a difference. We've got to come in there and be able to feel it and not just fix it. Another thing we want to say is your entrance determines your exit. In other words, we don't want to be arrogant. Stay humble. Let's be humble. Embrace loneliness as God's cry is alone time with you. It is lonely. We're never alone, but I know that in leadership and maybe in this time, we might feel out and alone, but actually embrace loneliness as God's time with you. Go to God and press in. Guard your inner circle. I know these are not new, but I'm talking about a, a season where we're wanting to see what remains. Be careful what inner circle you're connecting to. Guard that inner circle uh, because we've often said, you know, show me your friends and we'll show you your future. Be careful who you connect with. We need to be intentional about building close friendships. We, what remains is relationships. So have friends and build friends and build with people and so on. Be accountable, friends. I don't know how else to say that. It's so obvious, but so many are not. And you can have everything in place, but not have the heart to be accountable. Be accountable. It helps us with right living, with revelation, helps us with reproducing, and it helps us with um, 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 whatever the other one was. Anyway, be accountable. Are you accountable? Are you really accountable? Are me and God? No, no. To others. Do they have the right to speak? Have you asked them to speak? Are you being accountable? Because we need to if things are going to run. Let criticism become your friend. People are criticizing. They will continue if we do anything for him. But the praise of man is fickle. 
Don't put stock in what people say. Just let criticism become your friend. We can learn from those. Too many leaders are derailed by the opinions of others. Don't worry about what people say. Stick to God and what He's called. Embrace for yourself the same grace you tell everyone else about. Uh, his love is our identity. Keep an ever-present sense of divine call in destiny in our lives and in our ministries. Our ability to quit and to become sidetracked is great, but keep it ever-present that you are in the divine call and your destiny, your life and ministry is in God's hands. Keep His assignment before you. Don't get caught up in what everyone else is doing. Live in forgiveness and forgive others and forgive God. Live in forgiveness and forgive others. And can I say forgive God? What I mean by that, God never hurts us. But perhaps you have been let down in some of your thinking. Forgive. Learn to live in forgiveness. And hurt people, hurt people. We know that. And lastly, look after your first sheep, your spouse. Invest in your relationship with your spouse, friend. It's so vital. It's what remains. And it's the privilege we've been given. And so I know there's much more to this. I recognize you can add to this and feel free to do that. But this is my kind of moment. I believe that God has given just for me to be able to share some of these things to you guys in South Africa. May you stay strong in Africa. I long to see you. I long to be with you. I trust this is helpful and a good reminders. But would you just let it get in you? Not I know this. I know it's been long, but let's meditate. Let's take time and make sure God's given us a warning. God's given us a, a, an opportunity here to sort some of this stuff out. So when we come out of this, we will be stronger, more focused, and be giving ourselves to what it is He's called us to. We love you. I really appreciate our partnership. We're with you. If you need anything, please sing out, reach out to the team. We are available. If I can help in any way, please reach out. But know this, we long to see you. I hope it will be in October. If not, we'll see you sometime not long after that. Bless you. Stay faithful. Stay fruitful. Thanks for our partnership. God bless you.